Today we're wrapping up our, our series, The God-Centered Life, and next Sunday we're actually starting into the Gospel of John, which I am super excited about. It's uh, the most kind of personable of the Gospels, uh, the most unique of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have journals. Uh, so we're going to, that way you can uh, be able to each week have the scripture and have like a place to take notes. And we've got them today, so you can take it home and begin to, to read and get ahead of the curve. I know all of you overachievers will be glad to do that. So uh, if you are new, you've come in the last few weeks or so, uh, or today's your first day and you're like, I think I might come back, uh, take a Gospel of John as a gift to you. If you're a regular, we'd ask you to give $5. So that just helps offset um, the cost of buying them. Uh, all right, well, the last few weeks, we've been trying to get our minds and our hearts around this idea of following um, God and how who God is shapes the way that we live our lives day in and day out. And uh, there's a quotation that we, uh, we've looked at and used several times from A.W. Tozer that once said, he was a great theologian, gone for many years. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's such a deep statement. I've reflected on it so much. And what he's really getting at is the idea is, if it's, even if it's subconscious, what you believe about God, what you believe about ultimate reality will shape the way you live your life. You may make conscious decisions about that, but you also may have assumed or grabbed unconscious ideas about who God is. If you believe that God is largely uh, is out there, but is an indifferent being that really isn't involved in your personal life, and he's kind of just there on call if you need it, like 911, um, then you'll kind of live your life that way. If you believe that God is not really interested and doesn't have any moral framework for your life and doesn't have any purpose, like clear purpose for your life, then, then you'll kind of figure, go and figure all that out for yourselves. But the, the God of Christianity is a God that, um, and the, the one that church has confessed for 2,000 years, is a God that brings all of those things. And uh, the way we've been looking at this is through a grid of four characteristics of God. And these characteristics are, are huge. We could do, I could do an entire sermon series on any of these, but we just took, a simp, took the big concept, and rather than just getting lost in that, we said, God is this, and therefore it practically impacts our life this way, one particular way. And so um, God is great, God is glorious, God is good, and today God is gracious. These are originally from uh, Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change, um, ironically enough, he doesn't spend a huge amount of time on this, uh, which surprised me, but um, it, it really is powerful as we think about this. These are the statements we've looked at. God is great or in control, so I don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so I can be content in him. God is good, so I don't have to live for the approval of others. And God is gracious, so I don't have to live for success. We saw that these are not simply ideas or, or simple beliefs that you have that that might influence your behavior sometimes in ways you think about things. It, it's not like having a favorite sports team, right? I don't know, I, I know every, not everybody is in here is into the same sports, but I would imagine at least most people in this room have one sport or one team that they have some allegiance to. Maybe it's the college you went to and that's why. Um, but, you, but, but often people will arrange their schedule around that, right? There's a game this Sunday or, or Saturday or whatever, so I'll, I'll watch, I'll go, or I'll, I'll buy a hat when I see one. But that's largely it, right? It's not like they get up in the morning just, to, I mean, there are some rabid, like, especially college football fans, I think, get up in the morning and they're just thinking about what, what, uh, what shirt should I wear today? Which one of my jerseys should I, you know, put on? And like, and that's very important to their identity. But most people, it's just kind of a, yeah, it's kind of something on the side. Yeah, it influences me sometimes. That's not what these beliefs are. These are radical, um, life-changing 
uh, ultimate meaning and purpose beliefs. Uh, that call for a radical orientation of our lives. And what we've seen through these statements, I believe, and I hope you've seen if you've been with us, is that it's actually for our good. That what God, who God is, ultimately answers some of the deepest struggles we have as human beings. Um, We are made by God and for God, and we ultimately can't find meaning and purpose and hope and peace in that internal equilibrium that we long for without Him. Now, part of the challenges of the modern life, in the West at least, is we don't know why we're here. There are so many competing ideas that are handed to us day in and day out, um, and, and forget just sort of advertisements that, that entice us to believe that this is the good life or that's the good life. And it might even be as simple as using Dawn dishwashing detergent as the good life, right? The way they paint it. Um, <laughs> or this you know, new commercial of somebody who's starting to take this medication, and they just seem really happy. Uh, so it, it's any number of things that are cast as the good life for us. And the problem is that we, we, we struggle to make sense of that. We might have a purpose in particular areas of life. Like some of you could, could very clearly say, I think I know what my purpose with work is. I have, a, I have a meaning, I have a goal, I have a purpose there. But that doesn't encompass your whole life. It doesn't bring in like all of your relationships. And outside of that, you would be hard pressed to answer why that purpose intersects with anything greater necessarily. Um, But Christianity, the God of Christianity, answers these questions and brings these things into focus in relation to God. So today's truth, God is gracious, so I don't have to live for success. Um, Apart from having a life that is rooted and connected with God, we have a tendency to give ourselves to to various things. We've seen that through the series, whether it's um, pleasure or, or success or approval of others. Um, and today really is, is success. And I, I think this might be the one for us. I mean, last week was pretty good on approval, but I think this is the Boston sermon, right? <laughs> At least the, the Brookline sermon. Uh, we have been told since we were little kids that you need to achieve, you need to succeed, that your identity and who you are can only and should only be based on what you are man- able to produce or the level of success, or the job, or degree, or whatever that you get. And so we're told from a young age, many of us, that that is what life's about, succeeding. And so if we're told that from a very young age, reinforce that from a very young age, what happens? We begin to hook our identity to that, how, how, uh, how successful I am. And it's a, a, a tough place to be, but it's very common in our world and our culture. I um, I know I'm dating myself here a bit, but Rocky, anybody seen Rocky the movie, right? If you haven't, just go home and rent it. It's, it's a classic. Yes, there's no special effects. The acting is somewhat mediocre, but it's got a great message, and it's a classic, right? Like uh, when you hear somebody refer to Rocky in the future, you'll always know. But um, I'm going to spoil a little bit of the movie here. When Rocky ends up uh, with the opportunity to fight the, the, uh, the champion, right, uh, uh, Creed, Apollo Creed, um, he was asked, he was pushed, why do you want to do this? You're just, you know, you're nobody. You just showed up on the, on the boxing scene. Why do you want to fight him? And this is what he said. Because all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody has ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Now, I know many of us would not say it exactly like that, but... There is a haunting feeling in the back of our minds that unless we succeed, we're just another bum from the neighborhood. If we don't achieve, if we don't reach that, that pinnacle, and sometimes it's because people are just 
People have spoken that over us our whole lives. You're brilliant, and therefore, the, the only success for you in life is to achieve at the highest academic level. Or you're gifted in this way, and the only way for you to actually, um, for, for us to affirm you is that you would become the very best at that thing. I mean, I've seen it, gosh, seen it on all kinds of people from uh, kids who, who show some athletic promise, uh, and their parents just literally riding them uh, to, to, to achieve at the highest level whether, in some senses, whether they really wanted to or not. Um, but what, is it, what does a life um, look like living for success? Here are a few markers that help flesh this out. One is that you find your identity rooted in achievement. Your identity rooted in achievement. What you've done, what you will do, uh, you have a burden to produce. You feel like if you haven't done something today, if you haven't been productive today, that you failed. Today was a waste. Um, sacrifice of relationships. I see people who sacrifice their, uh, their, their uh, spouses, their family, their, their friends in order to succeed in their workplace. I knew one, heard one guy who used to attend our church uh, years ago told me that he worked with a very, very successful uh, design engineer. And he said, you know, he, he's a, he is, uh, has a singular focus in this area and actually told him, he said, um, yeah, I don't date. I just haven't dated anybody in five years. And he's like, why? Isn't that kind of lonely? He goes, well, it just frees me up. I can focus more on my job, focus more on my career. And so people will sacrifice relationships for that. Anxiety over results. You have that fear where something's kind of hanging out there and you're not quite sure how it's going to come down, whether it's going to be, you know, great or whether it's just going to be the second one, the next point, fear of mediocrity. You're afraid to be, you're afraid to be average. Ironically, actually, uh, Theodore Roosevelt once said, comparison is the thief of joy. Um, it's a brilliant, brilliant statement there. Um, but, you know, one of the things that happened to me coming to Boston, I had not spent a lot of time. I'd met a few MIT people over the years, a couple of people that had gone to Harvard. But they're kind of a, you're kind of a dime a dozen here, right? Like it's, you know, throw a rocket, somebody went to, went to MIT or whatever. Um, so you're not extraordinary. You've realized that. Here, you're not extraordinary. He goes elsewhere, you're the only guy in the whole town who's got his, you know, PhD at MIT or whatever. Um, but... Uh, here, you're kind of a dime a dozen. And what happens is I've actually met some students. One guy years ago was starting a PhD program, and, uh, and he was starting attending our church, young single guy, and I met with him, and he's like, man, he goes, I've pretty much always been the smartest guy in the room. And he goes, I don't even think I'm in the top half. <laughs> he was really struggling with his identity. Because, why? Because he had, been, had his identity built on being the smartest guy in the room. And so sometimes if you don't have like a healthy understanding of who you are, that your identity is not how you appear to everyone, um, it can ruin you. Uh, there's, you find selfish ambition in your heart, sometimes showing up in jealousy towards those who do succeed. And then you, here's the, this is a really tough one, difficulty resting. And I mean like actually not sleeping. I'm talking about taking a day off. You know what that is? That's when you don't produce. <laughs> You don't measure the day by how much you got done. You measure the day by the fact that your soul breathed deeply and rested. Anybody struggle with that? Everybody nod their head, yes. Um, one question to ask yourself to, to sort of answer this question for yourself is, is uh, fill in the blank here. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I achieve in this area or am known for this thing. And unfortunately, I see parents who are driven by success then 
living vicariously through their kids' success. You know, it's, um, it's a violin at two, Latin by four, private soccer coaching by six, you know, like picking out colleges, lining up the right school to make sure that they are the best of the best of the best, right? And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about holding your child back. I'm not saying, you know, my child happens to be pretty brilliant, so I'm just going to give them coloring books. That's all they're going to do, you know. But ironically, the research is bearing out right now, one of the most helpful things for a child to experience through those single-digit years that we do not give them at all today is unstructured time, unstructured playtime, where, where, you know, back in the day when I was a kid um, and, you know, mom turned the TV off, I couldn't go play video games because our video games were attached to the TV and it was very rudimentary. Um, You had to kind of crank it up, you know, to get it going. Um, (laughs) I had to, I had to like figure out what to do. I had to call my friend next door and go, hey, Brian, uh, you want to play? You want to hang out? You know, and we'd get, and then we'd get together and we'd talk. Well, what do you want to do? Ride bikes? We can kick the soccer ball. What do you want to do? That unstructured playtime, they're finding out like create socialization, boredom, feeds creativity in kids, daydreaming. You know, when I was a kid, my parents would, what are you just daydreaming your life away? Well, it turns out daydreaming is actually really good for the brain in children. But you've got to, you've got, you can't be riding them with this idea of what you think success is and give them that time, right? Um, to, the message today is God is gracious, so you don't have to live for success. And I want to very quickly look at these ideas. God is gracious. There's an invitation to experience that grace, and then that, the the cost of that grace. So, so grace is free. It's a free gift, but there's a cost to it. Um, it's very costly for God, which calls for a costly response on our part um, to that gift. But let's talk about what is grace. God is God being uh, a God of grace is one of the most unique, if not the most unique facets of Christianity. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his lifetime, uh, there was a, a huge um, conference, uh, British conference of comparative religions, and he was hanging out there, and he went to... Uh, um, he was walking by a room and he heard all these you know, leaders and they were talking through what does Christianity provide that's unique? And they began to talk about the idea of, of the Trinity. They began to talk about the idea of the incarnation. They talked about the idea of the resurrection. And around the room, they would like toss it around and then somebody would say, well, you know, there's kind of echoes of that over here. There's kind of something like that over there. And C.S. Lewis uh, just came in the room and, and heard them talking about this. And, and they asked him, what do you think? And he said, oh, it's easy. Grace. And the room ended up talking about that, and that was the answer they settled on. That grace is the essential, unique thing of Christianity, and it's because what we find is it is actually um, God's character. But what exactly is grace? The short definition gets thrown around a lot, at least in Christian circles, uh, is the unmerited favor of God, right? It sounds good, and and it's not a bad definition, but it's just you can have unmerited favor towards a neutral person, right? Like you just find somebody randomly on the street. They're not doing anything to hurt you. They're not a, a bad person. And you just give them $1,000. That's grace. They didn't earn that. But that's not the grace of Christianity. The grace of Christianity doesn't act like we were wandering around doing okay and just God decided to help. Uh, the grace of Christianity is much more. J.I. Packer, one of the greatest theologians in the last hundred years, he said this, what is grace? 
In the New Testament, grace means God's love in action towards men who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Grace means God sending his only son to descend into hell on the cross so that we guilty ones might be reconciled to God and received into heaven. This is the contrast between uh, religion and, and Christianity. You can, uh, religion teaches that I obey, therefore um, I am accepted. But Christianity teaches I am accepted and out of that I obey. There's a huge difference. If you're, if you're new to church, you're new to Christianity, you're exploring uh, today, the message that God has for you today is not get your act together. You just need to start following these rules I'm throwing down there, right? That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is you are loved today. God has grace for you today, despite everything you have done up to this point. And he sees it all. But So religion teaches a performance or a success based on fulfilling commands and opens... Um, and the idea is that it opens us up to be welcomed by God. But Christianity teaches that all the obedience that was ever needed for us to be reconciled to God was already done by Jesus. There's also a contrast between grace and the American sense of personal entitlement. This personal entitlement basically says, God is okay with me, good with me, because I'm special. Right? And I'm, I, my generation was the first one to get that. Like, they just fed it to us like Kool-Aid. Right? You're special. You can do anything you want to in life. I hope you've gotten old enough to know that's not really true. Not everybody can do everything or anything that they want to. The best thing you can do is help your kid to understand that they are a unique person. They have some gifting, and they're not gifted in others, and that's okay. And they can rejoice in those who are gifted in things and help them to, to find out who God made them to be, not, not this idea of they're just like a whiteboard, and they can just draw whatever they want on it. They are, we are made distinctly, but that's all another sermon. Um, <laughs> but the idea that I'm special is built off this gospel of self-esteem, that the best thing you can do is feel great about yourself. Um, but we're haunted by our own weakness, aren't we? We're haunted by our own Im Im imperfections. We're haunted by our own moral struggles at times. It's interesting, even I've talked to, had a lot of conversations with people that uh, don't even believe in God. And, and one of the things that happens with everyone is no matter what moral framework you build for yourself, you almost always end up violating it at some point. We, we, we are haunted by our own imperfections. And so we like to cover it up and act like it's okay. But the, the beauty of the Christianity, the beauty of God's God is that his grace sees through that. Christianity teaches that though I'm erect, I'm loved because God is awesome. Not, I'm awesome, and therefore God should love me. That's the beauty of it. Now, the amazing thing about grace is that it isn't simply something God does. It isn't something he just extends. It's inherent to him. Uh, when God was saving the Hebrew people out of Egypt, he took them out into the wilderness and took them to a mountain. And Moses went up on the mountain with God. And, and if you know this story at all, I'll just summarize very quickly. Moses is up on the mountain and God descends in a, like a, there's like a fiery top of the mountain with clouds and smoke. And it doesn't, there's like rumblings and stuff, language, thunder or whatever. And so you can just imagine how terrifying. The people would not go up on the mountain. They were like, mm, nope, nope, you go up there, Moses. Just let us know what you see and hear. You know, they were terrified to go up there. Moses went up there. Um, with God. And God revealed himself. So this is the God um, who has um, brought these people out. He hasn't had a lot of time to talk to them. 
you know, a, long, a lot of time to really engage them, explain to him all who he is and his character and what, he, uh, what his framework for family and for his people is. And so what is, he, he's kind of introducing himself. He's like, Moses, you saw me in the burning bush. I've spoken to you some along the way, but now I've got you up on the top of the mountain. I'm going to reveal myself to you. This is what it says in Exodus 34. Oh, sorry, before I say it, 34, 5 and through 7. But uh, I would expect God, this is, this is me reading back, I would expect to go, hear this booming voice. I am God Almighty. You shall bow down and worship me. Right? I mean, something like that, probably a lot louder. But like you, the, I mean, if, if God showed up in a scene like that, what would you expect him to say? Except, I'm awesome. You know, like, but what does he say? Listen to this. This is crazy. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now that's, you're like, was he confused? Was Moses like, I can't remember. What's your name? Who are you? No, the, in the Old Testament, in that culture, anytime your name was proclaimed or declared, it, it reflected who you were, your character. It would, to say someone's name actually reflected who they were. So as he declared his name, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Now, briefly, the Lord, the Lord. Why, why do you think he said it twice? Want to make sure got home, right? Like he drove this home. The Lord in, in, your, in your English Bibles is capital L. And I tried to, I don't know if it carried over, but it's a capital uh, L with um, small caps, O-R-D. Now, the reason that's there and then other places it's capital L and just lowercase O-R-D is because capital L with, with small caps O-R-D is actually the Hebrew word Yahweh. It is God's proper name, which translated means either I am or I am who I am and I will be who I will be. So this is God's name. My name's Bland. God's name is I am, Yahweh. So he says, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God is a God of love and grace and mercy. In the end is saying, I'm also a God of justice. He's rooting this whole thing in his name. This is who God is. Whatever God is like, it, he is that way consistently. Grace is not a, a, a switch he flips on. It's not a um, mood he gets into, right? Like we and I, we're all moody, right? I don't know if you knew that, but sometimes I can be really, really nice and outgoing and friendly. And then sometimes I'm just... I've got some emo kid inside of me and I just don't want to talk to anybody and anybody who bothers me, bothers me, right? Uh, and so God is just gracious, merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It is who he is. And he is that way 24-7. That means God's character is gracious. Whatever you might say about God, you can't say anything that's more true than that God is gracious. <clears throat> now, flip in your mind to the New Testament, if, you, if, you, if you're familiar with uh, the Gospels and the stories. Jesus took, um, <clears throat> took his disciples, took three of his disciples, his buddies, uh, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain. You might remember this story. It's one of the weird one, weirdest ones in the New Testament. 
Gospels. He takes them up on the mountain, and what happens? Something happens on the top of the mountain. There's a big bright light. Jesus is transfigured. He starts to glow in the dark. And then Moses and Elijah show up. This is a sermon, this text is often called the transfiguration. Basically, for a brief period of time, Jesus' glory, like, shone through. And Jesus and Peter and James and John saw this. They didn't know what to do. It's funny. Peter's like, hey, I, we should build some huts so we could hang out up here. He knew he was in a good place. He knew this was pretty awesome. But he, all he could think of was like, I don't know what to do. I could build some huts for us to stay in. <laughs> and, uh, but there's a voice that comes, and it's God the Father. You know what he says? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In saying that, that whole scene echoes Exodus 34. All theologians agree this is the New Testament picture. The difference is um, that God didn't declare his name out loud and he is gracious and kind. What did he do? He declared himself through his son. Jesus is quite literally the grace of God personified among us. He is the Exodus 34 passage in human form walking around. And this is the essence of God's grace to us today, that that Christ, we would know Christ. And we are invited into this. So this is the second idea here. Um, God invites you and I to experience his grace. So he's a God of grace, and he invites us into this experience. Now, to understand this invitation and even some of the language, Jesus' culture he was living in was uh, occupied by a violent uh, people called the Roman Empire was occupying its land. They were persecuting Christian uh, or uh, persecuting Jewish people. They were really, they came down periodically and um, just sort of proved that um, the Jewish people shouldn't get any ideas because they had revolted before and had some pretty big revolts um, that cost Rome a lot to, to put down. And so they would routinely kind of keep the, the Jewish people in Israel under their thumb. Meanwhile, there's also a religious establishment. The religious leaders, mostly Pharisees, uh, Pharisees were the largest group. There are also um, Sadducees and scribes who were religious practitioners, and they all had kind of their own set of rules. And they related to everyone by, um, by their, their level of obedience. They, had a, they were living by their success and achievement. Look at me. I have, I have studied the Torah. I have learned the Torah. I am more righteous than you. Oh, look at me. I, I follow all the rules around these things. Not just scriptural rules, but they had another 600 rules they added to scripture to like really control life. And their idea, that culture then, was people who would look up at them or look at the Roman Empire and say, I'm, I'm basically... Um, living in an occupied land under the oppression of these people, a nation, and I'm in a religious environment where the Pharisees were loading up more commandments and more rules and more expectations and walking around full of self-righteousness and expecting you to bow and, and give them deference and respect. And this were the people. These were the people that Jesus was ministering to. And what he did in his lifetime here was to flip that script Instead of, he, he, he invited the religious leaders to follow him. He invited them to know him, and some did. Um, but Jesus often found himself among the outcasts in society. He often found himself not among the people who were religious performers, but by those who knew they, they were terrible people. People who knew that they had sin in their lives. People who knew that they were weak, that they were not like the Pharisees. That they could not be righteous. Righteous. 
and Jesus offers them grace. And the beauty of it is he didn't show up to say, Jesus didn't come and say, listen, you all need to get your act together. Like I said earlier, you need to hear some new rules for you. You need to start following these, get these under your belt and uh, work your way up to God. None of that. On the flip side, he also didn't come and say, you know, that whole Old Testament, all those rules, that's just that's so last millennia. Like, let's just move on. We're just going to move on to some other stuff. No, he actually fulfilled all of those rules <laughs> and lived a righteous life that you and I could not live. Loved the outcast, the marginalized, those who were hurt, and the religious leaders. He loved everyone. His grace was for everyone. He invited everyone in. Matthew 11 is probably the greatest invitation in Scripture, I think. Honestly, uh, th- there's no other religious leader, prophet or religious leader. Um, Buddha, Buddha may have been the closest, kind of said, like, let me show you the way. But Jesus actually says this, come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Labor, uh, those who labor and are heavy laden, burdened with life, exhausted with performance, exhausted with achieving, exhausted trying to prove that you are worth something, exhausted trying to live up to your parents' expectations or someone else's expectations or trying to to succeed at this so you can actually say, I'm not just a bum from the neighborhood. You're burdened. He's calling those of you who've been told your whole life you're only worth what you can do, what you can achieve, what job you can get, what money you can make. Come to me those heavy laden with guilt and shame and fear over your past, come to me. And the promise, he says it twice, I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. Not I will give you a religion. I'll give you some rules. But I, the grace of God in human form, will satisfy you so deeply, we, we're, so, we're so walking around looking for our circumstances to satisfy us, to just get everything perfect so then we can have peace. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't need your circumstances to find peace. You need a person, and I am that person. That person that can give peace. <laughs> Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, said this, From nursery school onward, we're taught how to succeed in the world of ungrace. The early bird gets the worm. Demand your rights. Get what you pay for. I know these rules well because I live by them. Yet if I care to listen, I hear a loud whisper from the gospel that I did not get what I deserved. I deserved punishment and and got forgiveness. I deserved wrath and got love. I deserved a debtor's prison and got instead a, a, a clean credit history. I deserve stern lectures and crawl on your knees repentance, but I got a banquet feast spread for me. The reason Jesus can offer this and say this is because he is the one who paid the price for it. It's not that God looks at yours and, and my sin or my failures, my, 
my pride, my, my attempts to live independently of him. And he just goes, you know, none of that matters here. Come to Jesus. No, he says, God is a God of justice, right? And God chose to put that sin, my sin on his son, on the cross for you and for me, all of the ugliness of my sin. So that then I get all the beauty of grace. I get all the beauty as if I had not sinned, as if I had never been alienated from God. And this is a beautiful invitation to walk with God. It isn't a solo journey, though. One of the things Jesus does, and which is why the, the gospel is our core value, but I, you'll hear me say time to time, it's, and our, our second value is uh, community, and third is mission, but it's really gospel, gospel community, and gospel mission. Because the gospel, when we experience that, isn't just an individual thing. God's not interested in just, you know what, I just want to... I want to extend my grace to a bunch of individuals out there. No, God is creating the language in the New Testament as a family, a kingdom. And he connects you inherently with other people, which is why you desperately and I desperately need community to follow Jesus. That's my, my bid for you to sign up for community group. So I mean, there's a table out there you can sign up. Or you can get on our website. You know, the thing, I stand up here and I tell you that, uh, like, God is gracious, so I don't have to live for success. But I'm telling you, I have confessed to my community group my success idol, my own struggle at times. Over the years, I've, I've, you have no idea how much, as a pastor, I, and I know most, maybe there's a few that don't, but most pastors tend to put our identity in how the church is doing church growing? Is it big? Is it doing better? Is it bigger than that church? Is it doing better than that church? There's a temptation here. And, and that's when it gets really messed up because you're like, I've got pure motives and impure motives, and they're like this <laughs> as I do ministry. And it's challenging. But you know what helps me is to be in a community of people that I can confess that to and share that with who will pray for me and walk with me and remind me of even in that God has grace for me. That's why you need a community group. <laughs> Listen, grace frees you from the treadmill of performance and success and the never-ending burden to prove yourself and gives you rest for your souls. I know many of you are in jobs or in fields that you're, you're forced to try to prove yourself all the time, right? You, you, you have to. If you don't perform, you don't get to stay where you are. And I got to see that firsthand um, those of you that have been around for a while know this, but uh, those that are new, I was actually the chaplain to the Red Sox for 11 seasons. And I got to see these players that would get called up from the AAA team, which is just below the major league team, get called up for a game. And literally, this is their first time, everything is riding on their performance. And then the, those that are around that don't yet have that big contract, they're, they're still living by that performance. Man, they will drop me, trade me, let me go, release me, send me down as soon as I stop performing. And so I told them all the time, be glad God is not like the Red Sox. Be glad God is not like your boss or your supervisor or your program director. God sees you. He loves you where you are. And he loves you if you don't make it in that program. You're not a failure in his eyes. Listen, I've seen, I've actually seen, there, there's this lie also that, um, that comes around in, in Christian circles that if you're gifted, you have to achieve at the highest level. That's the only way you honor God. 
I've seen Christians, uh, very gifted, brilliant, highly educated Christians give up a great job because that job was going to interfere with their ability to do mission, be in community, to love and serve their neighbors well. Now, what is success there? Well, success is submitting your life to God. And that gets us to the third and final point here. God's grace is free, but not cheap. It's free. You know the difference between free and cheap, right? If I, if I uh, pull out a piece of bubble gum, I hand you a piece of bubble gum, that's free and cheap. But if I sold my house and gave you all the money, that's a different reality, right? It, 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 if I gave you a piece of gum, you might stick in your pocket. You might never chew it, right? You're like, oh, thank you. you know, and you walk out, and you're like, I don't even like it. Throw it in the trash. If I sold my house and I gave all the money to you, I hope you wouldn't do that, right? Like the, the, the weight of what was given, the cost of it, and the weight, I would argue, of the person who gave it to you should impact how your, what your response to it is. So while grace is free to anyone who wants it, you don't get to grab grace and then do whatever you want. Grace meets you, but it calls for a response. God's grace is so extravagant, so infinite, so huge, so all-encompassing and immersive that it calls for our whole lives. This is not a, um, an opt-in, opt-out option on an email, right? You know, you've got those where you're like, ah, yeah, okay, I'll sign up for your daily or monthly newsletter or whatever. And then, like, you know, about the 42nd one you didn't read, you open it and you're like, opt-out, right? Unsubscribe. This is not, that's not grace. You haven't experienced grace if you even think it's like that. Grace meets you, and the scripture, Jesus actually says, and we'll get to John 3, obviously, in a few months when we're in John, but he describes the language of being born again. It's literally an inner transformation of who you are as a human being. So then the response to that is walking with and following Jesus. The language in the New Testament is being a disciple. We don't use that language a lot today, but back then a rabbi, a religious rabbi would, would gather some disciples around him. Those disciples would walk with him, live with him day in and day out, uh, would learn all of his teachings, would watch his behavior and how he acted. And the goal was that they then would go live that way. They would then go be able to go and teach with the authority of their rabbi. They would go be able to live under the authority of their rabbi. That's discipleship. We've turned discipleship into an intellectual pursuit or a hobby. Intellectual pursuit is about gaining more information about God or a hobby. It's something I do a couple days a week. No, you are a disciple of Jesus 24-7, which is why he calls for us in Luke 9, 23 through 25. Jesus said, and he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Let's modernize that. What would it profit you if you got your greatest success, dreams of success in your field or, what, or life or whatever? But somehow, in the end, that was all it was. What does success look like for you? What if you got the whole world? Is that life? 
Jesus says we're called to come after him, to be a disciple, to live with him, to know him, to learn from him, and then to go live that out. That's the picture of denying myself. I'm, I'm turning away from the sin that once killed me and would kill me again if it could. And I'm, I'm, I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus daily. I'm taking up my cross because that's what he died on. And I'm a picture of the cru- what's called the cruciform life. We don't use that language anymore, but the cruciform life. My life is shaped, formed by the cross. And I live and follow him. And I would love to tell you that you'll get everything you hoped and dreams, dreamed. There are, there are, just turn on the television or look on YouTube. There are pastors that will come on and tell you, if you'll just follow Jesus, all your hopes and dreams will come true. And it's baloney. It's, it's not true. It's not the gospel. Because I've never heard one of them read this text. <laughs> but I will tell you this, that whatever does happen, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of Christ. And a good God does have a plan of success for you. That's the beauty of it. You, once you belong to him, you can say, here it is, God. And, and by his grace, most days, I'm able to do that with the church. <laughs> most days, I'm able to go, God, whatever you want to do. And then he, in his grace, just reminds me in a thousand beautiful little ways how he's been at work at City on a Hill and what he's allowed us to do. And I go, like, I think if this keeps going when I retire, when I'm 90, 95, I think I'll look back and just be like, what an amazing joy. But um, there's nobody in, nobody, not very many people out there that are going to look and go, that's a really successful pastor. But that's okay. I will tell you this, God will say no to you sometimes because he loves you. He won't give you the success that you want because he loves you. Because you know how, how few Christians can actually really handle success? The Christians who've actually handled success are often the older ones who went through a long period before they got there. I had a story this week. I got permission to share this, but um, just of an example for you. Uh, some of you um, may, may know we have a guy who plays guitar for us. He played this morning, David. Um, he's, he's, he's pretty good, you know? Um, you can look him up on Instagram. He has 125,000 followers or something. Um, we've had people visit the church and like, like realize it was him playing guitar. Um, he played Coachella earlier this year. Um, again, not, not, he's not, he doesn't boast about it. He's a very humble, gracious brother. But what happened a couple weeks ago is he missed a text from a music producer to come to New York and play for the MTV Music Awards. He followed up a little bit later and they told him to come down, but they, they weren't sure if he would play or not. He went down, and for four days, he and God had it out. He did not get to play. This is a career dream for somebody like him. This is like a career maker. And most of us believe God would give that to us because then I could glorify God more, right? But sometimes, and this is what David would tell you that kept shocking me. He says, God is not loving because he gives me what I want all the time. Sometimes the most loving thing God can do for me is to say no. Now, he wasn't there for a while. <laughs> he had to come home. He had to debrief. But he came to see that, and he said, I don't think I've experienced God's love quite like that in my life. That's the kind of place that God wants us to be. 
where, yeah, you can have hopes and dreams. That's good. Like God, God's not saying, I don't want you to dream of anything. He's simply saying, submit that to me. And know I am gracious. And I've got a purpose for you. I close with Galatians 2.20, which I think is Paul's echo of Jesus' statement, his personal echo. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to move to time of response together. Um, over this next song, we, we, uh, those that are Christians, we offer communion. Uh, communion is the physical reminder of God's grace to you, given to you as a, as a physical way to encounter grace afresh and anew. Um, and so know as you take it today that it is not reluctantly offered. You're like, well, you don't know my week. God does. <laughs> and he still freely invites you to take if you are one of his children, if you have crossed that line of faith, if you believe in him, if you've experienced that renewed soul and life, not perfection, nobody's perfect in here, but you know that you belong to him, then you can take communion sometime over this next song. If you're not a follower of Christ or you're really not sure where you stand with him today, this is the, the one part we'd ask you to not participate in. We're gonna stand and sing. We invite you to do that. We invite you to pray, kneel, um, whatever God leads you to do. Uh, for anyone here, we'll, we'll have folks over here by the window from the prayer team to pray with you at any point uh, through the rest of the service and afterwards. And so uh, feel free to slip over there. Maybe you've just been struggling with this success idol and you just don't know quite how to lay it off. And what you need is someone to pray for you. You need someone else to step in and intercede. It's, it's not weakness to admit that you need someone. It's honesty. I can't tell you how many times I've had people on the prayer team pray for me and it's been, it's been transformative. So maybe that you need that today. Let's go ahead and stand together. I'm going to pray and then we can respond. God, you are, you are grace. You are mercy. It is your nature and it is your delight to extend those things to anyone who will come. To anyone who will lay down the burdens they've been carrying and come to your feet. You will not cast them out. You will bring them in. You will give rest to their souls. You will invite them under your yoke to live life with your strength. I pray for anyone in the room who's really struggling right now with that success idol in their heart. They've been told that's all they're worth. They will only be worth what they can do or achieve. God, meet them and show them your love is so much better than that. Show them that your grace is perfect for them. As we take the bread and the cup, we remember, Jesus, you have done it all. This offer to come is available to us and is guaranteed because you provided the way. We take the bread, we remember your body. As we drink the cup, we remember your blood poured out for us on the cross. 
may we experience that new life even today in a new and fresh way. In your name we pray.